welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd bear the pain of pseudo-agraphia. If I had to write the words, you missed this week's show. The tech that comes next, social impact orgs, technology developers, Funders, communities, and policymakers can all do better at technology development for greater equity, argue Amy Sample Ward and Afua Bruce in their new book, The Tech That Comes Next. On Tony's Take Two, heading to the Holy Land. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission, turn-2.co and by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits. Tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. It's my pleasure to welcome Amy Sample Ward returning. She's the CEO of N10 and our technology and social media contributor. They're at amysampleward.org and at amyrsward. And to welcome Afua Bruce. She is a leading public interest technologist who has spent her career working at the intersection of technology, policy, and society. She's held senior science and technology positions at Datakind, the White House, the FBI, and IBM. She's at Afua underscore Bruce. Afua is A-F-U-A. Together, they've co-authored the book, the tech that comes next, how change makers, philanthropists, and technologists can build an equitable world. Their book is at thetechthatcomesnext.com. Amy, Afua, welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited glad to, to be hear here. what you uh, think it's a of the book. to have both of you. Afua, for the first time, very nice to meet you. Glad to have you. I'm so um, excited to be here. Thank you. Excited. That's very, terrific. You may be more excited than I am. I don't know, but uh, no, I'm very excited. I'm very pleased. I already said I was pleased. Excited is uh, excited is even better than pleased. Thank you. Uh, Afua, let's start with you since people know Amy Sample Ward's voice. <laughs> um, I feel like we should start with a, a definition of technology, the way you two see it. Absolutely. Technology can mean many things to many different people, and even when people just simply hear the word of technology, hear the word technology, can conjure promise and hope of the future and assistive devices that may transform our world, uh, but it can also bring up feelings of intrepidation and confusion. And so in the book, when we talk about technology, we define it very broadly as to what are tools that exist to help us really exist in the world. Um, and so this can be anything from um, digital systems and websites and the like, AI, for example, but it's also more basic things such as, you know, paper or uh, other tools that are just used. And so we define it extremely broadly in the book. Uh, the focus of the book does focus uh, on digital technologies though, and really looking at adoption and uh, use and development of digital technologies, especially as it relates to the social impact sector. And what uh, what troubles you about our 
relationship to technology? Um, well, I, I am an engineer, a computer engineer specifically. And so I love technology. I love being in technology. I love doing all sorts of things with technology. I love designing new ways to use technology and figuring out how to design technology to uh, support new ways of interacting that we have. I think um, one of the things that does give me pause though, is how some see technology or some try to position technology as the be all and end all, the magic uh, solution that we could have to solve all of our problems. And that if we simply find the right technology, if we simply insert technology into any societal problem that we're facing, that that technology will magically fix whatever we have been facing. And that's simply not true. Technology is not a natural phenomenon. It is something that we create. It's something that we should be intentionally creating to minimize bias, uh, to make sure that technology is developed and used in inclusive ways and really does enhance what we want to do as humans, which is hopefully live well together in community. Um, and not just be used as some big tool to force uh, different, often um, different, often uh, disproportionately impacting uh, outcomes. And you have a lot to say about uh, development specifically, uh, more more equitable development. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think equitable development of technology is something that can um, and should be continuing to grow. I think. Uh, historically, especially when we look at the past several decades of uh, the um, rise of digital technologies and uh, technology more broadly, the um, the power, the money, the education has been concentrated in one group and a lot of other groups. It uh, includes a lot of uh, historically underrepresented or overlooked communities. Um, based on ethnicity, based on gender identity, based on sexuality, based on ability, uh, physical ability, mental ability or more, um, have really been left out or forgotten about. And so when we talk about a more inclusive design process, more inclusive development process for technology, we're talking about one being more inclusive into who is actually allowed in the room uh, when we talk about technology design. So who do we see as capable of being technologists um, and who have who has those abilities to engage that way? But also recognizing that because technology does not exist alone, that because technology doesn't exist in a vacuum and because technology can't magically solve all of our problems on our own, even if you're not a technologist, you should be at the table in some of these design conversations because you are part of communities that have needs and those needs should be articulated at the start of the design process. Uh, you might understand a particular subject matter. Um, I think in the book, we talk about uh, using technology in the education space, in the uh, food space, in other spaces as well. You may have some of that knowledge that is critical uh, to making sure that the technology supports the overall goals of those sectors. And so it is important that as we think about being inclusive in developing technology, we make space for not just different types of people who are able to be technologists, but also different types of expertise that we need in that development process. 
So you're you're not so pleased with the model where uh, rich, privileged white males develop uh, technology, develop, uh, identify what's going to be solved and how best to solve it. I, I, I assume that that model is not working for you. I would say I would go even further than I'm going out on a limb. I'm going out on a limb. It is not working for most of us. <laughs> um, so it is not working for most of us to have uh, the power concentrated in that way. Okay. And in fact, uh, someone, see, I don't know who wrote which sentences, but somebody wrote, we can't continue to perpetuate the belief that those with the most money know best. I don't know. Maybe your editor put that in. You may not even be one of the two of you. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the, um, maybe the I, editor I, put that in. But trust me, Amy and I spent many, many hours on many, many uh, aspects of writing and editing to make sure that uh, what is in the book we both stand behind. And so, absolutely, with that sentence, is right. something that I think we we both uh, stand stand behind. Um, we can't let, like you said, we can't let one small population, of, in this case, uh, rich, privileged white men, be the ones who design all of the technology and decide all of the outcomes for everyone. We really need to, and in the book, we talk a lot about how it's so important, why it is so important to go back to communities and communities who understand their needs, who understand their priorities, and let communities drive that process that would then include um, policymakers, that then includes funders, that then includes um, technologists themselves, and that includes uh, the leaders and employees at social impact organizations. Another aspect of it is that just what's what problems get solved, what 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 gets attention. Um, Absolutely, and um, I think uh, we have lots of ideas on this. But I have been talking for so long. Um, I would love to pass it no, to we'll Amy. Get, we'll get Amy, Amy Semple Ward gets her, Amy Semple Ward will get their chance. It's okay. Um, all right. If you insist, uh, for all right. Um, okay. If we have to go to Amy now. All right. Uh, you say, somebody wrote this sentence uh, exactly related to what uh, Afua was just saying. We dream of community-centered work that builds from community-centered values. And there's a lot of emphasis on going back to values. Um, why don't you uh, just sort of introduce us to the, some of those values, Amy? Sure, happy to. Um, I think that you know, one thing we say in the book, and we've we've enjoyed getting to talk to a lot of groups about since the book has come out, is that everything we do as people is centered on values, but oftentimes we don't talk about them. We don't make sure that our values are aligned when we start working on something. And so then those values become assumptions. And I think we've all heard many different puns about what happens uh, when you operate on assumption, right? And so that's that's kind of part and parcel of of also assuming that the only people that can make technology are people with certain degrees or that have a certain amount of money or that you know look a certain way um th again th that that's those are values that we're not talking about and that we need to talk about so that we can be really intentional about what we want to focus on um and in the book you know afu has already been speaking to some of those values that there's important role and we need to prioritize lots of different lived experience as an important part of, of any technology project um, that a lot of different people should be involved in every single stage of that process, not like at the end, once we build something and we like pull the 
pull the little cover off and are like, ta-da, we built it. What do you think? There should be no pulling the cover off. You know, everyone should have already been part of it and known it was being built this whole time. Um, but also values that I think are important to kind of name early in the conversation around accessibility. So much of the, the barriers and the walls around technology projects that are there, you know, again, whether people are talking about them explicitly or not, that are maintaining this, this false reality that only certain people can be involved are coming from a place of saying, oh, we speak a certain way. We use these acronyms. We, we talk about things without slowing down for other people to be involved. So what does accessibility look like? Not just that a tool could be used with assistive, you know, devices, but really that you are not using jargon, that you're making sure things are being held at a time of day when those folks that you want involved can be there, um, that childcare is provided at your user group meetings, you know, at every level that you are operating in ways that really do make things accessible to everyone. Um, and I, I think another value that we like to talk about early in conversations is the book is kind of a big idea. Like the world is not the world we have right now. Like what if it was not this? What if it was equitable and just and wonderful? Um, and I know you want to talk about the illustrations, colorful. Uh, you know, so to get there, it's not like two steps. It's not, okay, that'll be on like the 2024 plan, right? It's a lot of work. And so technology and the relationship and expectations we put on it, just like social change, are that we can make incremental right now immediate changes. And at the same time, we can be working on really big changes, the shifts that get us to a very different world, that we have to do both. We can't just say, well, let's live with harmful technologies and, and harmful realities until we can all of a sudden just change over to the like non-harmful one. Um, you know, we need to make changes today as we're building for, for bigger change. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. They have a bi-weekly newsletter that I get. It's called On Message. And they had something interesting in the in the last one. It was five ways to find the timely hook. And I've talked about news hooks with them. That can be a great opportunity for you to be heard when there is some kind of a news hook. So how do you find these timely hooks? A couple of their ideas, uh, track recognition days and months. I just did that in August. It was National Make-A-Will Month. And I did a bunch of content around that. And there is, you know, there are days and months for everything, like pickle day and a lot. So, uh, you can search for, um, you can search for the, the, the recognition days and months, find something that fits with your work. Uh, another one was, um, just stay, staying current with the news. They said they were going to send their e-newsletter on the day that Queen Elizabeth died, but they thought better of it because you're not going to be able to get people's attention. People are just going to be deleting emails more, rapidly because they're consumed with the death of the queen. So they held off a day or two. Um, and tying to a trend is another one that they suggested. Uh, and they give the example of when um, including salaries in job postings was trending. And they use the example of somebody who actually wrote contrary to that idea. But it was timely. 
because it was uh, something that lots of people were talking about. So there's a couple of ways of identifying the hooks. You can get their newsletter on message. Of course, you go to turn-to.co, turn to communications, your story is their mission. Now back to the tech that comes next. How is it that technology is not neutral, Amy? Well, people, humans, I, think are, people, humans think I don't of, think humans have the capacity to be neutral and we are the ones creating technology. I mean, even before digital technologies, you know, the, the number of um, pieces of farm equipment that could be con considered technology, you know, humans built those that yeah. kill people who are left-handed because the tool was built by right-handed people to be used with your right hand, right? Like there's, there's not a lot of evidence that humans can be neutral. And so then you add to that, that we're building it with a often very small group of people, not talking about values for something that is meant to be, you know, used in a different context with different people. It's, it just doesn't have the capacity to be neutral. Right. Um, Let, let's take something that's so ubiquitous. It's, it's an easy example. Let, let's take Facebook. How is, so somebody, Facebook is there, you can use it or not use it. How is that not just a, a neutral entity sitting there for you to use or, or, or not use? I mean, you are welcome to use or not use Facebook, but just because you have the choice to use something or not use it doesn't mean it's neutral. The platform is collecting your data, is selling your data, is deciding whether and how you can use the tool to connect with other people or to create groups, right? It is not allowing you the control over how your data and, and use of the platform goes. So it's kind of a false choice, really. Um, and for a lot of people, it is very much a false choice. They, there isn't the feeling that they cannot use it if it's the only quote unquote free tool that they could use to find certain resources or to otherwise, you know, talk and stay in communication with certain people, but at what cost, you know, and I think that's the kind of conversation we're trying to spark in the book is technology isn't neutral. We just accept that. And then we say, and so at what cost, at what harm are people having to make these choices around how they navigate technology? And we have never presupposed in this book or in our lives that Facebook or any other platform is going to necessarily make the choices that are best for the community. And that's why policymakers have an entire chapter in the book. You don't need to be a tech specialist or have a FUA's, you know, technical background to be a policymaker that's making smart, protective policies that for users, we need to say, hey, people should be able to access and protect and restrict their data. Let's make some policies around that, right? Because the platforms are not going to make that policy themselves that, would be, that restricts them. Um, and so I think Again, all of these different groups together get us to the tools that we need and not just the technology developers themselves. Afua, anything you want to add to that? Uh, my, my question about why Facebook is not a neutral tool? 
I, I think Amy gave a really good overview as to why technology and Facebook in this case is not neutral. I think, um, you know, a lot of people now you'll hear say the algorithm made me see it. The algorithm didn't make me see something. And that just also goes to the fact that someone has programmed the algorithm. Someone has decided what will be given more weight or what will be given less weight, what will be emphasized, what won't be emphasized. And so that then drives your interactions and the biases that uh, the programmers have um, or the stated goals that the uh, owners of the platform have then get seen to and coded into the technology that you use, whether it's Facebook or any other uh, platform that then can affect how you interact, even if you do decide to opt into using the technology. As Amy mentioned, you always, well, not always, but you often have a choice as to which technology you want to use, what platform you want to log into, you want to engage with or not. Uh, but once you are there, your choices are li often limited in ways you might not realize because of the fact that technology is not neutral. We're, we're getting into the idea of oppressive systems, which which the book uh, talks about. Afua, you wanna explain? Uh, so Facebook may very well be an example, but what what, what what's oppressive systems in generally? You know, I think one of sort of the underlying themes of our book is that technology can really be used to enhance goals and to sort of enhance missions. And we argue in the book that we want to, um, you know, social impact organizations, especially communities, to find ways for technology to enhance their mission, to help them accomplish their goals more often. But the reality is that technology, again, sits on top of people because it's created by people. And so to the extent in which, extent to which, um, there are oppressive systems in society, whether that's around how people get jobs or access education or access other resources, um, that is then can just be translated into the technology systems that then um, help facilitate our lives. If the same principles for different sort of outdated policies that have uh, been rooted in unequal access, uh, for example, if you just take those policies and write code then um, that directly relates to those policies, the new system, this technical system you've created has those same um, oppressive uh oppressive aspects in that system. And so again, when we talk about designing technology, it does need to come back to what communities uh, are we designing for? Are we talking to them? Are we letting communities really drive that work? And through the development process, are we really keeping in mind some of the historical context, some of the social context, some of the uh, knowledge about biases and how that appears in different technology? And uh, what ties does it have to how organizations function and how policymakers do their work? Um, what we need to be funding to make sure that we have the time and the money to invest in a more inclusive process. Um, I, I just wanna add, as I was talking about that um, and kind of trying to like hear our own conversation while, while we're in it and to share the reminder that while of course, like Facebook is this giant, huge technology platform, um, we are also talking about technologies that nonprofits make. You know, uh, an organization that decided to have their staff or hire a web designer to help build something on their website that allowed users to 
complete their profile or to donate on their website. All of these things that organizations are doing with technology is also developing technology, right? It also needs to be inclusive. It should also have a lot of your community members and users part of that process the whole way, right? This isn't just for for-profit giant tech companies to hear this feedback. This is everyone, including the way we fund our own technology inside of organizations, the way we prioritize or build or don't prioritize or you know don't build technology. And when we when we think of it that way, and you know, it's just so easy, I think, or I think it is easy to to say, oh my gosh, Facebook is an oppressive platform. All of these things are horrible. It's done all of these things. We could, you know, we we could search for news articles from a decade of of issues, right? But that kind of shifts the attention um, and acts like we as organizations don't have any blame to share in that. Not that we're sharing in Facebook's blame, but like we too are part of making not great decisions around yeah. technology. You know, um, there's an organization that I, I experienced this as a user on their website and had to give them some feedback that they're, they collected demographics as you were creating your profile, super common to do, right? Um, their race and ethnicity category for like all humans that would answer this category only had four options total of all of the races and ethnicities in the world. There were four. Not one of those options was multiracial. Not one of those was other. Let me tell you the thing you didn't list here, right? You had to pick required question with four radio buttons. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is that is harmful, right? Like you, and maybe there was a good reason, not a good reason. Maybe there was a reason that you felt, you know, your funder makes you report in those four categories. I totally understand how hard it is to like manage your work as well as meeting all these funder reporting requirements. That's something we talked about in the book. That is an issue. We need to go fix funders reporting requirements. But just because a funder says, give us data in these four categories does not mean those are your four categories, right? You have an obligation to your community to, to be better than that. Um, and so I just want to name that as an example that we're not just taking the easy route of complaining about Facebook, which I would love yeah. to do for like yeah. five more hours. No, Facebook um, is not even, but, no, Facebook is but, not but even you mentioned. You know what I mean? Also trying to name it as, as something we're doing inside our organizations too. Uh, your example reminds me of the example you cite uh, from uh, Jude Scheimer, who says, you know, she's filling out a donation, they're filling out a donation form, and there's no MX option. Right. It was Mr. Mrs. Ms., I guess, and no MX. Um, by the way, you had uh, several nonprofit radio guests uh, quoted in the book, Jason Shim, Steve High, uh, Jude. So I'm glad nonprofit radio brought these folks to your attention, you know, elevated their voices so that you you became aware of them because I you would not have known them that's outside. That's the only way we knew about these. Right. Well, that's right. elevating sure. voices. That's exactly, exactly right. It's time for a break. Fourth Dimension Technologies. Technology is an investment. Are you seeing this? You're investing in staff, productivity. You're investing in your organization's security, donor relations, because you're preserving giving and all the actions and all the person's preferences and their attendance and things. So you're certainly investing in your donor relationships, uh, in your sustainability. So because technology is going to help you preserve your mission into the future. So 
I don't want to just throw something out and then uh, not explain it. So see technology as an investment. Fourth dimension can help you invest wisely. So uh, make those uh, savvy tech investment decisions. You can check them out on the listener landing page at tony.ma slash 4D. Just like 3D, but, you know, they go one dimension deeper. Let's return to the tech that comes next. All right, so let's bring it. All right, so no, as I said, Facebook is not mentioned in the book. I was choosing that as an ubiquitous example, but let's bring it to something that is nonprofit created. I don't know, who wants to talk about? I, I kind of like the the John Jay College case because I used, used to do planned giving consulting for John Jay. Who, who, which of you knows that story better? Nobody. Looking editor, at is that one that the editor can uh, through, through Zoom, but I will I will hop in and talk about the John Jay College example. So okay. uh, just briefly for folks who might not have read the book or gotten to that section of the book yet, um, John Jay College is an institution in New York City that had recognized uh, that they had a lot of services geared towards making sure people finished their freshman year and started their second year, but not as many services geared towards uh, people who, um, not as many services geared towards making sure people then ultimately graduate. And so specifically, they had noticed that they had a large number of students or a uh, not insignificant number of students who completed three quarters of the credits they needed to graduate, but didn't ultimately uh, complete their degree and graduate. They partnered with Datakind, which is an organization that provides data science and AI expertise to other profits and government agencies. Um, and so they worked with those data scientists to really understand their issue, to look at the 20 years of data that the academic institution had collected. The data scientists ran you know, about two dozen models, I think it was, and ended up coming up with, uh, ended up developing a specific model, a specific tool for John Jay College to use that uh, identified students who are at risk of dropping out and potential interventions. The John Jay College staff then uh, made the final determination as to what intervention would be done and how that would be done. And two years after this program was started, John Jay College credits the program uh, with helping an additional 900 students graduate. Um, and so that is, I think, a you know, one of the examples that we're talking about of really the technology coming together with the subject matter experts really being used to enhance the mission. And then really, again, technology and humans working together uh, to make sure that the outcomes are, are best for everyone. There's some takeaway there too in, uh, in regard to ethics, the, the, the use of the data, the collection and use of the data. Can you talk about that absolutely. from that? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. As we think about data, collect, data collection, data use, data analysis, I think in general, especially in the social impact space, you want to make sure that you've got consent when you collect the data, that you're collecting it in ways that make sense, that you're not... Uh, necessarily over collecting, um, you're storing in the right ways, it's protected in the right ways. Um, and then as you need to do something with it, you can, you can access it, you can use it as a way to foster communication across uh, different departments. I think one thing that was really exciting in talking to the John Jay College staff is they said this program and that development process actually forced conversations 
across departments, which if you've ever done any work at an academic institution, you know, working across departments on campus can be challenging. And so um, sometimes the data can force those conversations and can also um, help strengthen arguments for the creation or um, termination of different programs. Thank you, because ethics is one of the one of your core values, ethical considerations around around uh, technology development. And I think uh, that's I I I like that you're bringing that up, Tony, because I think it reinforces. I mean, Afua was saying this, but just to kind of like explain those words when we're saying that technology is there to help humans, it means that algorithm that was created is not moving forward and sending you know a resource or sending an intervention to a student it it is not there to do the whole process itself right it's there for its portion and then humans are looking at it they are deciding you know who needs what resources who needs what intervention and they then do that outreach right versus that idea that I think nonprofits especially think of all the time like oh if we just got the tool then this whole like thing will be solved and it'll just like somehow run its course you know and like the robots will be in charge and that's not great we don't need to do that we're not looking for robots to be in charge but also in this really successful example of technology being used it still required people you know the the technology isn't here to replace them it's to do the part that we don't have the time to do like crunch all those numbers and figure those things out and then the people are doing what people are meant to do which is the relationship side the intervention side the support side you know um, and yeah, the, I just want to like kind of separate the two, right? The, the tool was to flag those who are at greatest risk of not graduating after they have, I think, three quarters of the yeah. points or credits. Uh, so and so then that, stop. that not to go then. Right. That, the that's an ideal right. date. That's an ideal uh, data mining, artificial intelligence task. Just flag the folks who are at yeah. greatest risk because we've identified the factors like uh, I, I don't remember what any of the factors were. Uh, GPA, I think, was one. But whatever the factors are, we identified them. Now flag these folks. Now it's time for a human to intervene, right? And give the support to these to this population, so that we can have 900 more folks graduating than than we expect would have without without the use of the tool. Yeah, absolutely. And just to continue to build on what Amy was saying, I think sometimes as nonprofits are considering technology or maybe hearing pitches about why they should use technology or why they should select a particular technology, it can be overwhelming because sometimes the perception is that if you adopt technology, it has to then take over your system and, and remove sort of the human aspect of running your nonprofit. And that's simply not the case. You can always push back as to what those limits need to be sort of in general, but also very specifically for your organization, for your community, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And so really prioritizing, as Amy said, the using the technology to take advantage and to do those tasks that uh, are just simply more efficient and computers are more capable of doing that while you use the humans involved for the more human touch and some of those more societal factors. I think really um, it's important to emphasize that as leaders of social impact organizations, as leaders of nonprofits, you have that agency to sort of understand and to decide where the technology is used and where it isn't used. Yeah, we, we were really conscious when we were working on the book to disrupt this 
pattern that you know it's like you learn a new word and then you see it in everything that you read um once once we talk about it here you're going to like go and everything you click on on the internet you're going to see it but technology companies have been trying to sell us for a long time very successfully that their product is a solution and technologies are constantly using that language when you're looking at their website when they're talking to you you know oh, yeah. this is an all-in-one crm solution this is whatever they are not solutions they are tools and as soon as we as you know nonprofit staff start adopting that they are the solutions we then start kind of relinquishing the control right and thinking oh well the solution is that this tool has all of this it is just a tool you are still the solution right you are still the human and we we didn't want to have that language in the book so you know we're always talking about technology as a tool because with without humans needing to put it to work it doesn't need to exist we don't need to have a world that's trying to make sure we can maintain all of this technology if we don't need it anymore thank you for your service like please move along we don't we don't need that anymore and that's okay we don't need to feel bad that a tool isn't needed anymore it's not needed great we we have different needs now you know um and changing that kind of dynamic and relationship inside organizations a CRM database is a perfect example of that. It's not going to it's not going to build relationships with people for you. It's just going to keep track of the activities that you have, and it's going to identify people's giving histories and event attendance and help them ticket, etc. But it's not going to build personal relationships that are going to lead to greater support, whether it's volunteering or being a board member or donating, whatever, you know, right. so, okay. it's That's not the mission. It's not the food at the gala, even if it sold the tickets to the gala, right? Yeah. Like yeah. it isn't at all. So I, I so I gather, the, so the Wiley did most of the writing on the book uh, is what, what I gather, because um, I, I managed a couple of quotes and uh, nobody, like nobody claimed them. So, um, and also the, I, I see the, there's only two pictures. I like a lot of pictures in books. You only have two pictures and then you repeat the same two pictures from the beginning you repeat them at the end and and they're in black and white they're not even four color pictures so i there's a little shortcomings well, that's there's, because in the book they could only be black and white but in the ebook they can the one that's meant to be in color can be in color um <laughs> Yes. And also we knew that our, our readers have imaginations of their own and the words that we have on the page would evoke such strong images. We didn't want to I overly see. provide images in the book. All right. Very good. Well played. Okay. It's time for Tony's take two. I'm headed to the Holy Land in November. I'm traveling to Israel for two weeks. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering if you have suggestions of something that uh, I should see. We can uh, crowdsource. My uh, my sightseeing, uh, a few things that are already on my itinerary. Uh, of course, the old city in Jerusalem, um, uh, Haifa and the Baha'i Gardens, the Dead Sea, and uh, Mitzpe Ramon. You may have some other ideas, things that uh, you found, or places to eat. Maybe uh, that would be that would be great. Little uh, terrific places that uh, I should try in uh, either Jerusalem or uh, Tel Aviv. I'll be spending a lot of time in, in those two places, but also near these other uh, near these other ones that I mentioned too, Haifa. So if you know a, a good restaurant, eatery, uh, I'd appreciate that too. You could get me at Tony at TonyMartinetti.com. I'd be grateful for your Israel travel suggestions.
And anything else that you may recommend about Israel travel? I, I haven't been there, so I'd be grateful to hear from you. That is Tony's take two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for the tech that comes next with Amy Sample Ward and Afua Bruce. Let's let's talk about another story. Talk about let's talk about uh, yeah. You you all pick one, pick one of your uh, case cases stories to talk about that that you like. I can talk about one since Afua already talked about one. But I was thinking because Afu already said it earlier, the food sector. So there's one in there on rescuing leftover cuisine, an organization yeah. founded in New York. Um, and I think a pretty classic example of nonprofit trajectory, like someone has personal lived experience, they want to address, you know, make sure people don't have the experience they had and create an organization kind of accidentally, like they just start doing the work and they're like, wait, what am I doing? Wait, we've just created a nonprofit, you know, and, and kind of want to build because they start to have success actually doing the thing that they set out to do. Um, but like many nonprofits, you reach the limit of human scale. Like you get to the, this is only the number of people I can personally talk to or physically carry food, you know, from one restaurant to, to a shelter or whatever. Um, and realize, oh, we're going to need some tools to help us make this thing work um, and grow beyond just the handful of initial people. And also, like many nonprofits, that was a very reactive process, right? Like, oh, gosh, we need a calendar tool. Here's one. Oh, gosh, we need a, you know, a phone tool. Here's one. And not what is the best, you know, what, what do we really need? How do we solve these goals? So they found themselves a few years in with very common in the nonprofit sector, like little patchwork, you know, all different kinds of things they've kind of forced. And often the, the integration, to use a technical term, the integration between tools was humans, like answered the phone and then typed it into the tool because the person on the phone doesn't have access to type it into the scheduler, right? Like I, th they were having to be the tech integrations as humans, which meant humans were not doing human work, right? Humans were doing uh, work that, that the robots should be able to do. Um, and that's when they brought in more strategic, dedicated technology um, staff help to, to, to build. And again, what they didn't really realize at first is they were building a product. You know, um, I think this is a bigger conversation of who and I have with organizations is we are, we have products, we've built products. It's not bad. In I think especially in the U.S., we've come to think that product is like a for-profit word and we will have nothing to do with it. But what it just means is like it's a package. It is a thing that's doing what it's meant to do. And we should think about how we make sure it works and who can access it. And, you know, we, we bring some strategy to it. Um, but their process is really what drew us to including them in the book. They had a really inclusive process where all the different folks from, you know, that were users. So the volunteers who physically like went to the restaurant and picked up that food and, and took it to an agency, the people in the agencies, the people in the kitchen of the restaurants, all those different people were able to say, oh, I wish the tool did this. I wish that I could do this every day when I need to pick up food. I wish I could get this kind of message everyone was able to give that feedback and then see everybody else's requests so that as the the staff and community and the tech team 
prioritized, okay, well, what works together? What can we build next? What's in line to be built next? Everyone had transparency. Everyone could see that. Everyone understood, okay, my thing is last, <laughs> or like, I know why my thing is last, right? Like people could really see and give feedback and be part of the process the whole time. Kind of back to the very beginning of this conversation, what Afua said, even if they were not the technical developers themselves, yeah. they had important expertise, right? It was good to know, oh, these five different restaurants all want this same thing. What's happening, right? Like, what is the thing that's happening for restaurants trying to offer food? Let's figure that out. We know who to get feedback from, you know, um, we're just such a wonderful example of people really having everyone involved in the whole process. Um, and as they have done that and continue to do that, they were able to move people out of, you know, answering the phone to type into the calendar and move people into human jobs, um, grew the organization. It's now in eight different cities in different states. Um, and that's just more of the mission happening, right? Because technology was invested in, in the right kind of way. So the takeaways are, uh, transparency. In, in prioritizing development, inclusiveness, right? including the mm -hmm. including the community, all the all the different people who are impacted, uh, age, uh, giving them agency to yeah. contribute and not not have it developed. Uh, yeah, in, and they had. I don't know how much a, of this made it into the book, but you know, in talking with them and and having conversations, you know, there were a number of times where the thing they were hearing from all the different users that needed to be prioritized wasn't something as staff they maybe would have identified or at least prioritized. But when you're really listening and having the community drive that development, you know that what you're investing in is actually going to make it better for your community, right? It's the thing that they're asking for versus you saying, gosh, we have, you know, what's next on our development docket? I wonder what we could build. Like, let's think of something you're not kind of guessing, you know exactly what needs to be built. And that's kind of reinforcing for your users that you are listening, that you are valued, that they want this to be as good of an experience as possible for you, right? Which is really kind of um, bringing people in closer. And, and I think we all know, especially Tony as the fundraiser, like keeping people is a lot easier than bringing in new people. So if you can keep those partners in, great you know you keep those volunteers in instead of having to recruit new ones because you're burning them out because they don't like working with you it's not a good experience you know um yeah afua let's talk about uh the funding but but not from the funders side because most of uh, very few of our listeners are on the on the funding side they're on the grantee side and so from the well the book you talk about social impact organizations, but this is Tony Martinetti nonprofit radio, not Tony Martinetti social impact organization radio. So, so if we could use, please use nonprofits as an example. Uh, in, in their funding requests, they're doing grants. What what can nonprofits do smarter about uh, requesting funds around technology, the development, and the use? that's going to be required for the, you know, for the, for the project that they're trying to get funded. Yeah, absolutely. This is a question that Amy and I have gotten so many times uh, since the book has come out. We've okay. Well, so I gave you, audiences. I gave you a milk toast, bland, uh, ubiquitous question that 
You've heard a million times. All right, maybe some. Well, not that it's um, a milquetoast question, but it is one that is so important to organizations. And that oh, I think even for nonprofit organizations that have thought about technology before, then the question becomes, how are you going to get it funded, right? And so um, it's an incredibly important question. And so I think that there are a couple of things that nonprofits can do. One is to seek out. Uh, funders who are explicitly funding technology. We've seen an increase, I think, over the past several years in um, different foundations, different uh, companies who are specifically funding technology. And so looking for those types of funders, um, I think is really important. I think then another thing to, to do is to really uh, make the case, as we make in the book, that um, funding technology is part of funding programs of the organizations and part of funding the running of the organization. Um, it's not simply an overhead cost that is a nice to have that if you get around to it, you can do it. But really, you need to have strong technology and data practices in order to design your programs, to run your programs. Um, people you know, are used to being out in the world and interacting with technology in certain ways. And so when they come to your nonprofit, they still probably would like to have a website that sees them, that recognizes them, that's useful. Uh, they might like to know how to get connected to other people in your community, other staff members, and what those uh, communication technologies might look like and more. And so really looking for ways to write technology into program design um, as nonprofits are doing that as well. And then I think, uh, thirdly, uh, just being connected with other nonprofits through organizations such as N10 and uh, listening to other, uh, you know, great podcasts such as this one um, oh, to hear what um, what other nonprofits are doing and what's been successful as well and applying some of those techniques to your own organization. Uh, I, I feel bad that uh, I, made, I, I gave short shrift to, to the foundation listeners. So, I mean, there's... There's lessons in what you just said, Afua. Um, is are there one or two other things that we can point out for uh, for foundation listeners that, that to raise their consciousness? Absolutely. Um, I think one of I think you know there are many things about technology that can be uh, funded, um, especially with nonprofit organizations. And I really encourage foundations to think about what it means to really fund that inclusive innovation process and to fund, when I say innovation, I mean recognizing that uh, version one is might not be perfect. And so funding version 1.1 and 1.2 and version 2.0 is just as valuable as funding version one. Uh, we see this all the time in the private sector that you know, my phone gets updates on a regular basis and I still have a phone and that's okay. Um, and so really wanting uh, to make sure that uh, funders recognize that uh, we don't need to just create new technology every time for the sake of creating something new, but really allowing the space for that iteration and really adjusting to the community needs is really important. I think also uh, making sure that we're funding inclusivity. And so that can be things such as uh, compensating people uh, you know, from the community for time um, as they are involved in this development process, making sure that there's uh, money in the budget for all staff, not just a member of the tech team to get training on technology, but there's money for all staff to get training on the di different technologies that the organization is using. Um, and also the timelines that are given to nonprofits as they're doing their programs allows for that really critical community listening and community 
uh, input process into developing any technology and then ultimately um, developing and executing programs. I'm glad you just used community as an example, because I, I wanted to probe that a little, little deeper. How, I guess, I guess I'm asking how you define community, because you say that, you know, technologists and social impact orgs and uh, policymakers and communities can, can be, should be more involved in uh, uh, technology development. How are you defining communities there? We're not. <laughs> in a way, because a technology that N10 builds for, you know, the community that, that we have is very different than, um, you know, that would be a bunch of nonprofit staff from mostly the U.S. and Canada, but also all over the world, um, of all different departments, right? That, that would be the community that N10 has, but the community around, um, you know, the Equitable Giving Circle in Portland well, that's Portland specific, very, you know, geographically different than the N10 community. Um, it's folks who can do monthly donations that want to support, uh, you know, Black community in Portland. It, community is meant to be defined based on what is tr trying to be built and, and for whom it's meant to be used. Um, and that's going to be flexible, but I think where it really comes in is what we talk about in the book in the funding section, but also all of the sections is what does it look like when we expect that transfer to community ownership is the final stage of technology development, right? And so if that is the final stage, if um, the community, you know, owning the, the technology that was developed by someone um, is the final step, well, there needs to be a level of training and an investment that is very different than if you're planning to keep this privately yourself the whole time, right? If you're gonna turn it over to the community to own it and maintain it, you're gonna be investing in that community in, in the process in a very different way. You're gonna be including people in a different way. You're gonna be thinking about knowledge transfer, not just technical transfer, right? Um, and so that relationship with the community is inherent to the the goal at the end and i think that's for us part of what is so important about thinking about that big question of what does it look like for community to really own technology like even in the biggest widest sense because right now we as users don't own the internet right really there's there's 45 million people just in the us that can't even access broadband so the idea that the any of these tools even in the widest biggest you know most access sense are are collectively owned isn't real and so that goes back to community but it also goes back to policy it goes back to how we're investing in these tools what values we are even using when we when we access them um that's the whole book right there i guess <laughs> uh well, the uh, the the book is also uh a lot of questions uh, I, I always hope to get answers when I read books. This this book, lots of questions, questions at the end of every chapter, and then they're compiled at the end. They're organized differently at the end. Why did you take that tack? Absolutely. Um, yes, uh, our book does perhaps answer some questions, but it does provide questions. And that's because what this work looks like varies based on the community you're in, based on your nonprofit organization, based on your role as a policymaker, based on your role as a funder, perhaps. Um, it varies. And so what your specific solution will look like 
there'll be some of the same building blocks, but the actual techniques you use will need to vary. And so the questions that we have at the end of each chapter, at the end of the chapter on social impact organizations, for example, there are, um, I think, 25 questions, and five of those are questions that you as someone as a nonprofit can ask of other nonprofits about technology. You as someone as a nonprofit can ask of your funders to start that conversation with some funders that we were just sort of summarizing now. What are specific questions that you should be asking of your funders? What are specific questions you should be asking of technologists that come to you and say, have we got a solution for you? Um, what are specific questions that you should be asking policymakers? Um, within the realm of what's allowed for nonprofits to do as uh, part of the policy making process. And what are some real questions that you can ask of the communities that you serve and the communities you partner with to really get at what are their needs and how might that tie to some of the technology needs uh, for your organization? So what have we uh, what, what haven't we talked about yet that that either of you would like to uh, you feel like we've spent enough time on the well. Here I am asking you, and then I'm proposing something. So I'll cut myself off. What what, what would uh, what have we talked about yet, either of you? That I mean, right. I think one thing that we have experienced is that there are some topics like how do we do this, or <laughs> how do we fund this, or how do we make change. Um, you know, there's some topics that recur throughout a lot of conversations, but ultimately. We have never had the same conversation about the book twice because that's part of writing a whole book that's just questions, <laughs> you know, and isn't all the answers that isn't, oh, great, you know, turn to chapter three where we list the 10 things you need to do tomorrow. Like there are no, I mean, there's probably a hundred things, right? But um, because of that, what we wanted to do when we wrote the book, even if, you know, we said at the beginning, even if no one reads this but ourselves, we want to feel like we are starting a conversation that we are just going to keep starting and keep having and keep getting closer to figuring out what's next because it's going to be a whole long path. Um, and if it, if we're here to write a how-to book, that who are we to write that, right? Who are we to write the how-to book on how we completely change the world? But what if we wrote a book that said, y'all, how do we change the world? Like really, truly, how? Let's go. Let's go figure that out that motivates us. And so if it motivates us, it probably motivates others. And these conversations, I mean, I just love them because this, yes, we had some of those recurring themes that all of us think about all the time, but this was a completely different conversation than we've had before. And that will, you know, different than we'll have tomorrow. And I think what we've talked about the two of us is when we well, have not, not only Not only different, but better. <laughs> But when we have opportunities to talk about the book together with folks like you, knowing that people are listening, right? Thousands of, of nonprofit radio listeners, we want to, in a way, have this be like a practice session for all of them so that when they finish the podcast and they go to their staff meeting, they're like, hey, Afu and Amy, like, never had their sentences thought out before they started, probably said, um, a million times the bar isn't high. I can just start asking questions, right? That's why we have all the questions at the end. I can just start talking about this. There is no perfect. Perfect doesn't exist. So let's not worry that I don't know the exact way to talk about this technology project. Let's just start talking about it and, and get in there and have these conversations that we have almost model that process of just practicing the work of, of changing things. Afua, anything you would like to uh, 
leave us with? Anything we haven't talked about that you would like to? You know, the, the subtitle of the book talks about building a more equitable world. And we call out a few specific roles, but really I think it's just important to recognize that we all have a role to play in building a more equitable world. And so if uh, you see something in this world that you want changed, uh, hopefully this book does give you some real um, ideas about how you can go about doing that, some real questions to ask to find other people who can help you along that journey. Um, because really building an equitable world is an inclusive process and that uh, includes you. So that's that's all I would add. She's Afua Bruce, at Afua underscore Bruce. Her co-author is Amy Sample Ward at Amy R.S. Ward. And you'll find the book, The Tech That Comes Next, How Changemakers, Philanthropists, and Technologists Can Build an Equitable World at the tech that comes next.com. Afua, Amy, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Tony. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Next week, Gene Takagi returns with trust in nonprofits. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at tonymartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission, turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits. Tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. 